Hello. <laughs> morning. <laughs> um, my name's Andy. Um, the Bible reading for this morning is um, from 12 Nathan, 1 to... Oh. <laughs> um, 2 Samuel chapter 12, 1 to 15. <laughs> the Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveller came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveller who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you, and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the, Lord, with the sword, and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore, the sword will never depart from your house, because you despised me, and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity upon you. Before your very eyes, I'll take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and who will lie with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. This is the word of the Lord. I need to drop here so I can see everybody. I hope that's all right. My name's David. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'd like to welcome you. If you're visiting with us for the first time, a particular warm welcome to you. Uh, we have um, a welcome pack that we'd like to give you. So if you are new and you didn't get one of these and you're feeling a bit warm, there's some water in there. If you want one, raise your hand. Someone will come and give it to you. Otherwise, feel free to pick one up at the, at the back of the hall. Just a couple of announcements, if, if that's all right, even if it's not. Um, uh, this afternoon, it's actually 3 o'clock. Uh, we have a prayer meeting for those who are interested in praying for their friends or family who don't yet know the Lord. So if you have some friends or family who don't yet know the Lord and you'd like to come along and pray corporately, have other people pray with you, there's a room down the back called the conference room. You're very welcome to come. I'm looking forward to the day when that room's not big enough. But so far it's been big enough. All right, where we have people who come and pray for those who are their loved ones who they want to see come to faith in Christ. The second announcement is next Sunday afternoon at 2 o'clock in the same room. We've got an information afternoon on. I know there are people who are new to the church or you've been here for a long time and you've got questions about the church. Maybe what it believes, maybe its structure, who the elders are, any of those things about different ministries and you're not quite sure where's a good place to ask those questions. So feel free to come along next Sunday afternoon at 2 o'clock since 
ask any of those questions as well as hear some of the information about the church that there will be an afternoon tea provided. The following week we have uh, a luncheon down in, in Hope House, particularly for those who are new to the church, just to get an opportunity to talk with a few of the other people who um, maybe are new to the church and get to meet a few folk and just get to know some of the people who are regular around here as well. That's going to be on, on the 24th at 12.30 down in Hope House. So there are a couple of announcements there. Jenny Benstead's mum died, as we've prayed about. If you're interested in going to the service to remember her life, that's on, on Wednesday at 2 o'clock. Let me just pray for these, these three or four things and then we'll get and have a look at the passage for today. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have an opportunity to worship together now. In particular, I'd like to pray for Jenny and her family again and just ask that you bless them and keep them. Father, I think of those throughout our community who don't yet have a church home, and I pray that we might be a church which welcomes them. Father, I think of our people that we know who don't yet know you and ask that we might be concerned for them and that we might seek out ways that we can seek your blessing in their life as well. Now, Father, as we come to have a look at your word, these chapters from the book of Second Samuel, I ask that you will help us that we might understand them better. To understand what it is that you're saying to your people throughout time about yourself and about our relationship with you. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We don't have time today to go through all of the stories that are in these four chapters. In them is some of the most well-known stories of the Old Testament. In fact, in Sunday school, we always hear, almost always hear the story of David and Bathsheba. And in fact, people who don't come to church and haven't had much to do with the scriptures know the story of David and Bathsheba. I was talking to a friend of mine during the week who doesn't, hasn't been to church their whole life, isn't quite sure which is the Old and which is the New Testament. And they said, what are you preaching on this week? I said, I'm David and Bathsheba. They said, I've heard about that. So we know the story. And the consequences that come after the next couple of chapters are probably a little bit less known than the story of David and Bathsheba. What we had read to us today, many people understand, that's how David was convicted of his sin. In the next two chapters, which we didn't read, but I'm going to encourage you to go home and read, we have a terrible story of the death of of one of David's sons and the infighting within the family, the rape of one of his daughters. And just it's just horrible, the things that happen and the intrigue that goes on in that story. In fact, John Calvin, one of the famous people of the Reformation, said in one of his sermons in Geneva, he said, if you read this, your hair should stand on end because of how awful it is. And often, I think, when we come to read these stories, that's what we tend to do. We tend to get tied in with the awfulness of it. And it is awful to think of a brother raping a sister, a brother killing a brother, a a nation torn apart, a king sleeping with someone else's wife and all the other things that go in terms of having that husband killed and all the intrigue. And we tend to focus on that. But sometimes I think what we've done is we've we've lost sight of why this is in Scripture. It's, It's not a story to tell us that we shouldn't commit adultery, although we should. It's not a story to tell us that we shouldn't try and hide our sin, although we shouldn't try and hide our sin. It's in there for a bit of a deeper reason. And it's something that I want to look at today is about that. Before I get to that, 
just let me tell you, it's not just a simple story. It is enormously well crafted. It's one of those stories, the whole of all of those chapters actually, are like one of those great movies where every little bit means something and you actually have to read it again and again to get them. Um, I tried to think of a good example and for this congregation I thought of Wreck-It Ralph. I don't know if you've seen Wreck-It Ralph or not. I watched it and enjoyed it. But if you're a nerd and a gaming nerd, right, it's much funnier because you get the jokes. When it talks about a particular thing, you know that's either some code or some game or whatever else and you laugh, right? Those of you who aren't gamers don't know what I'm talking about. But the gamers who saw it, it's a good movie. I'm in the movie and something happens and people around me laugh and I think that wasn't funny. But it was if you have all the inside stories. And that's a little bit what it's like. Let me give you another example. I woke up this morning and went downstairs to iron my trousers. And uh, I thought because I've been in Canada, I've, I've been eating a lot of bacon and because I hurt my leg, I haven't exercised in the last couple of weeks. I thought before I iron them, I'll try them on. Put them on, and they, they come up here, right, but they don't close. They were that far apart. And I thought to myself, two weeks, and they're that far apart? And then I realized they weren't mine. I thought they're still, they don't normally fit me. I'm safe. And I had I'd got it all wrong. I had assumed something that was true. I have put on a bit of weight and I should exercise more. True statement. But my context was wrong. And I think that's sometimes what we do with this story. We kind of read that and we get all those horrible bits and we think to learn just from them instead of taking that one level down and a little bit deeper. And I was a little bit embarrassed about wearing women's clothing, but I got here and I was encouraged because Sylvia said, they're not mine. They're Luke. Sorry, Luke. Mm-hmm. Totally clean. I had the shower first. Right. But just trying to explain to you, that these are the misassumptions that we make. And this, this story is very deep. But my question to you, first of all, the statement, I suppose, is what does it mean in the whole of the passage. Why was this written? If we look at 1 and 2 Samuel, there is a story to talk about from Saul, the beginning of the kingship, to David as being the Davidic king. And we've just had this covenant where God promises to bless David and to bless David's line. And then we have this story which not only shows David's sinfulness and the fall and his actions in there, but in the next couple of chapters and even in what we talk about next week, tears his family apart. And the question is, why was this written? When was it written? Is one of the questions that you need to ask yourself. And the understanding seems to be that there was this promise made that God would bless David and his family. But the kingdom, because of this action, was torn apart. And the book was written, and one of the reasons for it, as actually this is the main point, is question is Solomon the rightful king and what happens why is it that David's line is now only in two of the tribes instead of ten and there's this explanation about 
how it all happened. Why you could still have confidence that God's promises were coming about even though it was in a torn and broken kingdom. You see, a lot of people were questioning, God promised this. He promised that he would raise up David and from David he would create this great nation and it didn't come about. Instead, we've got this torn apart kingdom and this nation which is constantly at war with the other part that should be a part of us. Is God's promise still coming true? Is this still right? And, and the explanation is given in these chapters as to why this has happened. Next week and the week after, we have a look at how there are statements made that yes, God's covenant is still on David. I suppose this is the first point. But God's promise is not independent of us. God, when he makes a promise for us, also has implicit within it this understanding that we need to work with him. And this is the explanation that David didn't. David was selfish. David was lustful. David was murderous. And the impact that that has on the whole kingdom Now, it does come up and show later on that there's a difference now between Saul and David. You see, what happened was Saul was made a promise of being a great king and that his line would last, similar to David's promise. But what happened to Saul? Saul sinned. And let's face it, Saul's sin was not as big as David's sin. Saul's sin, in one sense, if we're going to grade sin, and we know we're not allowed to do that, was much less than David's sin. But when Saul was confronted, he argued. He made excuses. He didn't change his life. When David was confronted with his sin, he said he repented. He acknowledged his sin. He understood, if we read Psalm 51, that his sin was against God. And he had a turn around and a change of his heart. It wasn't the same as it would have been beforehand. God says this. He said, I gave you everything, but you've despised my word. You haven't lived according to what I told you to do. And therefore, this is going to happen. There are consequences to our sin. But he does say to him, your sin is forgiven. Your sin is forgiven. And he reaffirms this covenant. Taking into account all of the consequences of what David did, he still blesses. And this was an encouragement to the people of Judah. As they looked at the torn apart kingdom, they could say, as they looked what had happened, God is still keeping his promises. And there was this understanding that they needed to continually walk according to God's way, not despise the Lord, and that he would keep his promises. I was thinking about this and saying, how does that apply to us? I know about you, but I think back into my Christian life of the promises that I read in scriptures for what is going to be true of me individually or us as a church and don't they sound fantastic and they are wonderful God will bring us together as people from all over the place knit us into a family that by the way we live together and our good deeds the community out there will see the light of Jesus Christ and and then I look at the reality of things And I see the way that even though I know the truth, I don't always live according to God's way. And we, 
infight and argue and do things and our ministries don't seem to have that buoyant expectation that the scriptures seem to talk about. We keep going back sometimes if you read the journals, we need to have a New Testament, etc. Because we, we want that promise that it seems that God has promised toward us to be fruitful. And this passage, this teaches that one of the problems there is not that God's promise is not true. But that we as his people fail to honour him in his promise. We fail to keep up our end of the bargain. We fail to live according to his way. He is still faithful. He will still forgive our sin. He will still be faithful to us. But the fullness of what he's promised isn't achieved because we don't keep our end of the bargain. And for me, that's a challenge. Challenges. I look at us as a church, I look at me individually, I look at my family, and say, how can we truly be that which God wants us to be? How can we do and become all that God has promised that we will do and become? God is not faithless, we are. And so it's a challenge. If we're not seeing all of that in our lives, to take a good hard look. Now David needed Nathan to come and tell him. But what should our application be? Our application be to come back and have a good look at ourselves and say, Lord, where is it that maybe I'm not living according to your way? Where is it that we as your people are not doing the things that you've told us to do? And encourage people to share with one another, we talked about this last year, in that genuine way to try and encourage one another to love and good things. That we might actually be all that God's meant us to be. That was the point for the people of Israel at that time and I think that's still a good point that we can take away from this passage. If we really want to know the fullness of what God has called us to be as his children, we need to make certain that we acknowledge him in all our ways and all our thoughts. And notice that when that doesn't come about, there may be a change that needs to happen within us. That's the first thing. The second part of this story is, is focused in, in many ways, and it probably isn't quite as clear in the English as it, as it is in the original language, but it's a, just a beautifully structured piece of prose in terms of the way it's put together. It's, it's one of those, you know, how church people often talk about the way that the Hebrews think in this sort of pattern of two thoughts being the same, and then two thoughts being the same, and then two thoughts... And the one that's right in the middle is the main thing that needs to be known by people. Well, the chapters 11 and 12 are written like that. And right in that central part is this idea that David repented of his sin. He acknowledged it and repented of it. Now, why is that all put in there? It's all put in there to, to make people understand that even though God's promises hadn't come about in their fullness, the reason was David understood his sin and he repented of it. But then it goes on to talk about the problems that happened after he repented his sin. It wanted people to know that repentance in and of itself doesn't take away consequences. It's great to know where we've done wrong and to say we're sorry. And we will probably always have regret for that stuff that we've done. 
but there are consequences ongoing. When I was at Bible college, one of the people who went to Bible college with us was um, a bit loosey-goosey with his girlfriend. And she got pregnant. And everyone found out about it. And he was very open and honest. He came and he confessed before us as his family, his sin, and he acknowledged his wrongdoing. He stood down from his position at the college for a while. And he was forgiven, not just by us, who he really in one sense hadn't sinned against, but by God. He knew God's forgiveness, but he still had a baby. Well, she still had a baby. The consequences don't disappear because they were sorry. And in David's case, his consequences flowed right through his family. His oldest son was killed. His third son was killed. His second son was killed. His newborn baby died. And all of this happens after God says to him, your sin is taken away. You have to read the story and go through it. There's just all these little bits and pieces in there that that are fascinating. But it seems to be brought about the fact that, and there's so many allusions, that really what happens afterwards, David has to take the responsibility for even though he's been forgiven. Amnon, his oldest son, rapes his half-sister. And the wording is very, very similar there. In the sense that he thought, because he's the king's son, he could be just like his dad. Absalom kills Amnon because he wants to look after his sister. (laughs) Well, we'll get to that later. Why is exactly what David did with Uriah? Joab convinces David to change his mind about something. What does he do? He does what Nathan did, except he does it the wrong way. Nathan came as a messenger from God to convince David to behave in a certain way. Joab understands that's what worked, and so he says to this woman from Tekoa, a wise woman, an actress, Go and do the same thing and get David to change his mind. And all of that brings about a rebellion with Absalom in the next couple of chapters. So David's sin has an ongoing consequence that not only tears his family apart, but it tears the nation apart. And yet this central sentence is there that his sin has been taken away. And I thought about that for a long time. And I don't know about you, but I know that as I think, as the older I get, I have more and more regrets about things that I've done in the past. Things that I see the consequences for in the future. I talk to a lot of parents, and they look back at the issues that are going on with their kids, and they can see the seed for that was their own actions or inactions when they were young parents. I can see that in my life recognized, confessed, forgiven, but there are still consequences. And you work hard to mitigate those consequences, but they're still there. Now this scripture is fairly clear that whilst David was responsible in many ways, there is also a responsibility now for these people. Even though it's a flow-on effect, Amnon did the raping. He was still sinful. Absalom did the killing, etc., etc., These people lied and stole and cheated and killed because of that. 
but they are still themselves responsible. And yet I can imagine David, in his old age, still having a regret. I did that and this is the consequence. My, my country is torn apart. My kids are dead. My wives have been abused. My nation has been decimated. 20,000 soldiers killed in a rebellion. All because of this action that I took. And yet, God says your sin is forgiven. I know of young people who have not been married and they've they've, um, slept together. And the consequences of that have marred their relationship as they've made new friendships and new relationships. And they look back on that and they say, I really wish I hadn't done that. It's destroying my relationship now. It's got the ongoing consequences. I wish I'd kept God. The good news from this passage is that we can be forgiven. even if the consequences are ongoing, we need to understand we are forgiven. And when these consequences come up, we can't go rushing back into that feeling of guilt as if God is still condemning us. Because God makes it really, really clear to David in this sentence. Your sin has been taken away. And these are the consequences. It's directly afterwards. And I don't know about you, but for me... That is both a comfort and something that is a concern. I really wish that God would zap it all gone. I talk to people who have been looking at pornography on the internet and they say, why does the images go away? I've confessed it. I say, the images will always be there. Move it from your brain till you've got Alzheimer's. And even then it comes back what happened in you. It's there, it's stuck. I wish I hadn't done it. I wish I hadn't done it. Well, understand this from the passage. It's been done. And the consequences might go on for the rest of your life. But God forgives. The outcome might not be as perfect as you wanted it to be. And you might have regrets. But God forgives. Not only does he forgive, but he still brings out his purposes in you and in your relationships and your family and through you. Not in the fullness of what you wanted, but in the fullness of what he does. And in the fullness of time, David's line still gave forth to the world the person of Christ Jesus. The greater king, the better David, etc., through a broken, battered line. I hope this is an encouragement. If you've got those regrets, I wish I'd studied at school. I'd know more and I'd be in a better job. I wish I hadn't treated my family like that. I wish I hadn't hurt that person. I wish I'd done better with my kids. I wish I'd treated my parents better. I can't do anything now. They've passed away. Or whatever it is. Understand that as you come before God and you say, I have sinned and I am sorry and please forgive me. 
Because of Christ Jesus, we are forgiven. The sin is gone. We don't need to be guilty any longer. That doesn't mean everything is now going to change. The consequences are still there. But we can go on to them now in the confidence that if we live according to what God wants, he will still bring about his good and perfect promises in and through us. It's just going to be different. Now, I find that an encouragement. Not only in the fullness do our promises come about, but that we can stand forgiven. And we don't have to hold on to the guilt of our past life and the regrets of it. We hold on to the regrets. But the guilt's gone. And the burden should be lifted. And we can go on enjoying and thankfulness. And we just have to read David's Psalms afterwards and how much praise he gave to the Lord even through the difficult times. And he wrote some fantastic Psalms even in the stories that are being repeated next because he followed God. The last thing to talk about, and I suppose this is more that challenge at the end. <laughs> I must admit those have been challenges to me. Everything has its consequences. Now, and this story is so beautifully put together. Just to bring out a few of the things, I'm not going to go into all of them because we really don't have time. When we talk about something like Bathsheba, the passage says Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, the daughter of Eliab. And for us that doesn't quite mean a whole lot because we don't know who all these people are. But if we read the rest of the Old Testament, we get a picture of what the people knew at that time. Eliam was the, one of the mighty men of David, one of the 30 mighty men, as was Uriah. So these guys were good friends. All right. So David sleeping with Uriah's wife and killing Uriah not just affected that family, it also tore apart the social structure of David's world. His mighty men who were the ones who he relied on for power and for his might in, the, in terms of his military world, they were torn asunder. They, they were torn apart. If you go further on in Second Samuel, Eliam's presumably father was Aphanephel. I don't know. Who names their kids these things? Right? He was one of David's advisors. And during the rebellion that comes in the chapters from next week, he goes off with Absalom and gives advice to Absalom. Why? Why did he go with Absalom? <laughs> I feel the reason he went with Absalom and not with David was because David had caused his granddaughter such disgrace, etc. David's sin had consequences he had no idea about. We don't seem to think about these things sometimes in the passion of the moment. Go to chapter 13. Absalom, his sister, has just been abused by his half-brother. And she says to the half-brother as she leaves, she says, don't do this. You cause me great disgrace. And Amnon says, get rid of that to his servant. Throw her out. We won't go into all the details, but the whole social structure of the nation is beginning to tear apart because of what David has done. 
And as his sister leaves the room, the doors are slammed behind her. She's got two options, just like a lot of people who get raped today do. I go public or I keep my shame private. And she starts to go public. She puts on her old clothes and she puts the sack of the ashes on her head and she starts to say to the world, this has happened to me. The consequences of going public is justice. Justice in those days, according to the law, was that she would be forced to marry Amnon, or more importantly, Amnon would be forced to marry her. She would now have a family and an opportunity for children, even though she's had this disgrace. It's not her fault. And he is going to have to own up to it, and he's going to have to make amends and bring her into his family and, and give her offspring and a family and care for her. So she starts to go public. And then her brother turns up and says, don't do that, I'll take care of you. I'll get justice for you. And he takes her and doesn't allow her to go public and he puts her in his house where for the rest of her life she lives as a disgraced woman. She never has a family as far as we know and most likely never did. Didn't have children. She always just lived in Absalom's house as his disgraced sister away from everyone because he wanted to take care of it himself. He didn't want it out there. Instead of her having a life, he kills his brother. Unintended consequences because we do things for ourselves. We don't realize how much it flows. We tend to blame Bathsheba, but that's all Hollywood. The, the text doesn't say it was her fault. It doesn't even say that she was necessarily um, up on a roof. It just says he saw her from his roof. He was probably looking in a window or something. As far as we know, everything she was doing was right. And the text makes it very clear it was David's fault. And all these consequences. I suppose my challenge to you and to me is that we sometimes forget that we can't keep things hidden. We think we're doing it and we're only affecting us. I know this when I talk to people who suffer with something like, touch it again, pornography. They think, I do it myself. And they don't understand that their, their mind changes in the way that they actually think about people around about them. Their relationships are abused because that's what they're doing. And not only that, all the money that's raked in in the pornography centres and, and creates more movies being made. More people around the world suffer abuse. And it goes on. And the consequences of our actions go outwards. It's not just in sexual sin. It's primarily, it's more about the idea of the social fabric being torn apart in a nation because of one person's so-called hidden sin. So I challenge you again. If we're going to live a life that does not disgrace God, we don't want those unintended consequences. We need to be vigilant in all those circumstances. And the story encourages us to do that, to remain vigilant. When we do fall, we know that we're forgiven. As long as we admit that before God, we accept what he gives us in Jesus Christ to take away the sin and the punishment for sin. But we need to remember as much as we can to remain faithful. So my final comments, I suppose, today for you are, as people who love God, you've had all these promises in Scripture. Know that God will bring them about. Know that you affect that in some way. 
as his children he promises he will bring you home to heaven with him you can be assured of that but the journey doesn't have to be as sweet and lovely as you imagine and often the reason for all of the turmoil can be traced back to the fact that we fail to give him the honour in our lives as we should know that when we fail that we're not the only ones affected but those consequences affect all of the relationships around us unintended consequences that we might not even see the consequences long term but know that when we come back to him he forgives us let's pray Heavenly Father we thank you for your goodness and grace towards us we thank you that you are true and faithful to your word Father there are so many promises that you give to us as your children and we would desire them in our lives you're guiding us you're leading us you're growing and working through us individually and as a family of believers to impact the community in Jesus name and yet Father we are sinful people I pray that you will encourage us individually and corporately to seek at all times to live in a manner worthy of Jesus we thank you so much that when we fail you forgive when we fall you pick us up when we run away you seek us out and you bring us back Father I pray that you might encourage each of us in our hearts to turn back and to repent of our sins Father help us to be free of guilt and the burden of guilt and yet let us honestly understand that there are consequences and we need to work to mitigate those as much as we can and encourage us and bless us I pray I ask all these things in the blessed and wonderful name of Jesus our Saviour